Have women lost their voice? Nancy Lammers-Gross is Associate Professor of Speech, Communication, and Ministry at Princeton Theological Seminary. In this episode, she talks about her forthcoming book, Women's Voices and the Practice of Preaching. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Frame your new book project. Tell us what you wrote about and why. Women's Voices and the Practice of Preaching is precisely about the voice, the human voice, the speaking voice. It's about the sound that comes out when we talk. It's not about what I call the metaphorical voice. It's not about women's perspectives on the world or on life. It's not about uh, women's interpretation of biblical texts. Mm -hmm. It's about the actual physical speaking voice. Mm -hmm. And how do you define that, other than not metaphorical? It's the actual, literal speaking voice. (laughs) (laughs) Beautifully simple. Yes. uh, And what what I'm aiming for is the embodied voice. That is, rather than being a talking head, for a woman to use her full body instrument. The voice is a full body instrument. So I say it's a foot to head instrument that requires the engagement of the full body to actually make the kind of sound that will communicate a woman's view, perspective, experiences. It's a way of claiming her identity, claiming her authority, her own personal power to speak. So the embodied voice is the voice that engages the full body to make sound. It's a full body instrument. And I came to this because I discovered in my first teaching assignment that women were not using their full bodies, and not just some women, but almost none of my women students were using a voice that engaged their bodies. If you've been a singer or even a wind instrument player, you know how, you know how to breathe. You know how the instrument works. You know that your belly expands when you inhale. So what are you seeing in your women students that made you feel that this was so pressing? What I was seeing was talking heads. I was seeing voices that were clearly disconnected from their bodies. And the way that manifests itself is usually something like a very high-pitched voice, which is all in the head. So they would talk up here, even if that really wasn't their natural pitch range. Or maybe they just went down into the gravel because they didn't want to do anything that would be too authoritative. We call that glottal fry, which is very unpleasant to listen to. Maybe the women would inflect upwards at the end of the sentence, which we call upspeak, which is what you do when you don't want to offend anybody, so you don't want to put out too strong of an opinion because you don't want anybody to think you're being too aggressive. That's called upspeak. And it's been going on for generations, not just since the Kardashians became popular. (laughs) So... um I'm going to lose my train of thought now. Uh, So why women specifically are, why are they in such desperate need of this kind of training? I'm going to make you go all gender studies on us. The, The work came out of my experience in teaching. 
And so it was my, you know, it was my witness, it's my uh, observation that says that women have a particular problem with this. And at my first uh, teaching assignment at the Eastern Baptist Seminary in Philadelphia, which is now called Palmer Seminary, I had many students of color. It's a very diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural school. And I had many students, uh, both women of color and uh, Anglo women, who came from traditions where they were not allowed to preach. So to preach at all was something of a rebellion. It was a, it was a reaction against how they had been raised and maybe even what their pastors and their congregations wanted them to do. And so one way to apologize for that is to use a very small voice, a disembodied voice, because the embodied voice just carries with it a natural sense of power and authority. And women were unwilling to claim this for themselves. And since it had been some years since I came to seminary, I thought that more women would feel this power and authority because more ecclesial traditions were ordaining women and putting women into churches. I had the sense that if women had permission to preach, then they probably wouldn't have a problem using their voices. So I found that absolutely not to be true. Whether women came from traditions, for example, the PCUSA or the United Methodist Church or the United Church of Christ, whether they came from a tradition that it ordained women or not, there still seemed to be this apologizing with the voice for speaking at all. And so I began to investigate that. And I asked women to tell me their stories and tell me the story of their voice. And from this, I began to learn that just about every woman has a story with her voice. Can you tell us the story, your story with your voice? Well, I didn't think I had one. I thought that I always had my voice. I thought that just because of the, the way I was raised, older brothers in a household where we were taught the right way to do everything and you do that to the best of your ability, I just thought that since I would probably always be right when I grew up, because that's what I perceived the role of an adult, um, I was busy about the business of learning to be right and learning to say what I thought was right. But what I discovered uh, later, uh, and the first indication of the realization that maybe I had not found my voice, not even my physical speaking voice, was going to teach among the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the free church traditions where the freedom to uh, proclaim the gospel with the heartfelt passion that someone has was just not something I had. Coming from the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition, I still felt locked up. Mm. I, I felt like to express vocally the commitment and the conviction I had for the gospel, for the lordship of Jesus Christ would somehow be offensive to my congregations. It would be over the top. It would be outside the bounds. I'm sure there are a lot of things mixed up in that, that the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition is an intellectual tradition. It's a bookish tradition. It was born of some suspicion of uh, formal liturgy and carried with it a suspicion of, of uh, the Holy Spirit taking over and being uh, uh, mistaken for actually what is the human spirit and human spirit ecstasy. So I come from a good lineage of suspicion of passion 
for uh, claiming it's the Holy Spirit, but it really, in fact, is only the human spirit. And what I needed was to be among these people who were from more free church traditions to experience and to hear and to participate in what it meant to express a full range of emotion uh, in the proclamation and the preaching of a sermon. That really set me free. And then the other thing that made me realize maybe I had not really claimed my voice was the first time I proposed my book to a publisher. And the publisher liked it very much. She said, there's just one problem. Your voice is not in your book proposal on women's voices in preaching. Yeah, a true problem. It was a true problem. And when did you first propose the book? 14 years ago. It was 14. It was somewhere around 2003, 2004. And she thought that that just required a tweak. She just wanted me to tweak it. And then she would take it to the editorial board, and she knew that they would be enthusiastic about it. But what was a tweak for her was an existential crisis for me. Because you realized you didn't have your voice in there. I didn't have my voice in there. And my physical speaking voice is so connected to my writing voice and my thinking voice, especially after spending 10 years among the Baptists and Pentecostals and free church folks, that I knew that I had not been in touch with something. I just didn't know what it was. And after being tortured about it for a couple of years, I had to put it on the back burner and just wait. For a decade. For a decade. So what got the wheels moving again? Well, I did a couple of terms as a dean of student life at Princeton Seminary, and that took me out of this thinking game for uh, fully six years. And when I returned to teaching, I just had to get my feet back underneath me, in the classroom, experience what the students were like, six years later in the classroom. I was with them all along as dean, but to be in the classroom with them and really to wait and see if my appetite for this was still wet. Was this still something that was a concern that I wanted to pursue? And the answer to that was overwhelmingly yes. My students had not changed. In fact, if anything, my women's students were even more disconnected from their bodies than they had been before. And so I renewed my investigation into what the cause of this might be. And over the four years that I was teaching before actually finishing the book, experimenting in the classroom with exercises that would help us reconnect to our bodies. So what's the, the biblical narrative that you keep coming back to that you just can't, can't stop? I didn't want to do a study of women in the Bible and what they said or uh, maybe how they had gone about saying it. I, that felt like a second-level reflection to me. What I realized is that I wanted to catch a woman in the act of using her voice. So I began reading through as many women's stories in the Bible as I could especially those who had some kind of a narrative. They didn't just show up and say something and were gone off the scene, or, um, or they didn't have just one section where they were referred to. But I, I was looking for the story, so it could have been somebody like Sarah. Um, it could have been something like Mary, the mother of Jesus. But I also wanted there to be substantive dialogue. 
And I landed on Miriam. Uh, that was, this was some years ago that I began working with Miriam. There are four texts that feature Miriam, with watching over baby Moses in the bulrushes, uh, dancing and singing, leading the women in song and dance after crossing the Red Sea. Uh, she goes up against Moses with Aaron and complains to Moses when they're in the wilderness that uh, he's the only one who people recognize as a prophet, even though they're prophets too. And she's deeply concerned about his marriage to a Cushite woman, which we take to be a woman of color, a woman outside the faith. So already we have this multi-ethnic issue going on. And then the last text that features her is uh, when they're at Meribah and there is no water and Miriam is dead. So all the th first three texts feature water. Uh, Moses in the river, crossing the Red Sea, and then uh, when they challenge Moses, uh, she's given leprosy, or that's how the Bible tells it. She's punished with leprosy. Aaron got a scolding from God. Miriam got leprosy. Mm -hmm. And the people were going to keep going on their journey, but Moses said no, and pleaded with God to heal Miriam so that she could continue with them. Mm -hmm. And God did, but said there has to be a seven-day waiting and cleansing period. So Miriam cleansed herself and was cleansed uh, by the waters of her leprosy, and not until there was this water cleansing was she permitted to return. So she has a very strong voice in each of these until the last episode when she dies. And in that place she dies, there is no water. There is no life. And the people of Israel mourn. And Aaron and Moses, in reaction to this, beat the rock that God told them simply to tap or to hit. They beat the rock in frustration. And of course, they then receive their death sentence that they will not go over into the promised land. So uh, because the story was so substantive, because the narrative carried the arc of what we think would be Miriam's life, I found her to be the ideal person, the ideal woman to catch in the act of speaking and using her voice. And it was crucial to, um, to the salvation story. Her, her voice and her actions were crucial to the salvation narrative. And uh, in that place where there, um, where there was no water, coincidentally, Miriam was dead. Mm. Wow. So you had this decade lapse mm -hmm. from the idea of your book to um, bringing it to fruition, and simultaneously you're raising two daughters. Yes. Can you talk about that? <laughs> As someone who works in ministry, preaches, teaches preaching, teaches voice, teaches speech. I wanted desperately not to fail my daughters. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I even had sort of a positive spin on that. I wanted not to fail them. I, I didn't want to fail them in the way they were being raised. I, I wanted the voices coming into their lives to be positive and to build them up and not tear them down. I was deeply aware of the power of words to tear them down, uh, to tear down anybody, children, adults. Paul's very clear about that in Ephesians, about the power of our words and to use our words for the edification of the people and not for tearing down. So I think one of the overriding concerns is how I wanted so badly not to fail them in allowing speech 
the voices, the, the literal sounds of voices in their lives to do anything but to encourage them and build them up. And I worked on building strong relationships with my daughters. I would always quote to them something a friend told me about raising children, which is to counsel them to do things in order. Go to school, get married, have children. But if they get out of order, just remember, we love you, we love you, we love you. And I wanted that with my kids. So I wanted them to, to discover what they were excited about, to discover what they were passionate about in a, in a school system that stressed such high achievement in grades and advanced placement courses and going to only the best schools. I told my girls, I didn't care if they took advanced placement courses. Those are supposed to be college courses. You can go to college when you go to college. And that they were smart enough to get A's. They were too smart to get very many C's. And I wanted them to find out what moved them in life. Because I'd been on the admissions committee of the seminary, and I see what happens with people who become 27, 28, and they finally leave their engineering jobs or their science jobs or their computer jobs and come to seminary to pursue the call they had felt all along, but were never allowed to pursue. And I wanted my girls to discover who they were. So it's not that I didn't make any mistakes. Believe me, they've let me know <laughs> that I've made mistakes over the years, as, um, you know, of course, their father as well. Uh, but, but what's happened is that I have two daughters who uh, they've had to work awfully hard for what they want, but they're both pursuing their, their own lives, their own careers. Right now they are 23 and 27, and they're both in careers where they have to use a strong assertive, even advocating physical voice. And they have that. And I'm really proud of that. But that was, a, that was an influence on my motivation. You know, when I would see women come in, and it's hard as a teacher, especially when you have children who are the same age as your students. You, you, you do think of parenting things. Mm -hmm. uh, you're aware of yourself if you're projecting, but I, I do want for them the same things I wanted for my own daughters. And I want these women who have so much talent and so much to give to the church and such a strong call to be able to speak what's in their hearts and to speak it in a way that's convincing and where they don't get in their own way. Yeah, so when you think about, um, you know, some women preach, many women don't. Is there a word here for, for all the women you know who don't preach? It feels like there's truth here for them, too. Absolutely. In fact, that was one of the rivers I had to cross in the preparation of the book. At one, at, there, there were a couple of places, but I had to decide if the book is going to be geared primarily towards women who speak in the church or whether it, be, it would be geared to women in general. Because this would be for any woman who works in a professional context I could easily imagine any profession, lawyers, doctors, business people, bankers, teachers, whatever, uh, needing to figure out how to use their voices. My children had a lot of women as teachers. And 
so often, I think teachers will recognize this, the scariest moment of their year was back to school night when they had to stand up in front of a classroom of parents, adults, and not children, and say something, and they were terrified. And I always thought, you know, I could help you with this. I know how to help you with this, not only to deal with that terror and what that's about, but also then to deal with that little girl voice that some of them were using to, to speak to us. And then it's not just for professionals, but I think any woman who is in relationship with another person, because claiming that physical speaking voice is about coming to terms with your own body. So what's going on with women's bodies? What's the, clearly there's something going on that causes women to be so disconnected from their voice. So what do you think is going on? Yes. Developmentally. I agree. So the simple thesis of the book is that the voice, this is the physical speaking voice, the voice is a full body instrument. But many women struggle to speak. And I say, I think they struggle to speak because they are disconnected from their bodies. They're disconnected from that full body instrument. And in my book, I address three primary reasons. Now, these reasons come out of my experience in teaching. I, this hasn't been you know, a critical national study done with statistics. This isn't my experience. I think there are three dominant reasons that women are disconnected from their bodies. The first one, I say, is that no woman has a good body according to her own feelings about herself. I know very few women who are actually happy about their bodies. And it's because we're taught that we have the wrong body. The body of the, of the culture and the media that's constantly driven into our minds and that we constantly see in on TV and on magazine stands, that body is virtually impossible for most women to achieve. So what we're taught is the image of the good body is something that's nearly unachievable for most women. And what I hear from most women is you're either too thin or too curvy, too tall or too short or too anything. Exactly. You're never the thing that you're supposed to be. You're never the thing that you're supposed to be. And even if you are that body, and others can see it, and even maybe if you can see it, women are terrified of losing it. I mean, women make decisions not to have children because they don't wanna lose their figures. That's really tragic. Yeah. So one reason is that I think no woman feels good about her body, or very few women do. And the manifestation of that in women who are getting up to speak is often a shrinking in on herself. She collapses her shoulders forward. Her feet and her knees are pressed tightly together. Her arms might be, um, her hands might be folded in front of her with her arms squeezed together. Uh, the shoulders are, um, uh, the, the shoulders are collapsed in. The head, the neck is not tall. The head is, is shrunken in. And uh, especially women who are a bit larger, they really don't want to take up any space. So they are even more inclined to try to shrink. Instead of claiming the space that they have and using their full body instrument, they're simply seeking to take up less space. So the first reason I address is that so few women feel good about their bodies. Mm -hmm. The second reason is that women, women's perspectives, women's naming their own experiences, perhaps women's 
um, interpretations of scripture have not always been welcome. Now that is the uppercase V, the metaphorical voice, where uh, uh, girls learn when they don't get called on as frequently. Or you know, the new thing about man speak, a woman will say something and no one pays attention to it until a man in the same room says the same thing. Or mansplaining, mm -hmm. right? Uh, her perspective is not being taken seriously. Right. And so you can be in that space and you can have an opinion, but it doesn't hold the same weight as right. if your body were different. Right, yeah. right. And that leads to a lot of upspeak, mm -hmm. right? So that's another reason. That's the gender norms. Those are the gender norms that I think get in the way of women using their full body instruments. And then the third reason uh, is simply... Um, that so many women have experienced abuse, both physical, sexual, and then of course emotional and psychological. And, but especially the physical and the sexual abuse, which is far more prevalent than most people think, the body is not safe. It's not safe to be in their body. They're not even sure they want that body. And to be in that body is to perhaps experience that abuse over and over again if they have post-traumatic stress. And so they disconnect from their bodies in order to disconnect from the experience of abuse. And leading these women back into living in their bodies, trusting their bodies, loving their bodies, letting their bodies speak is a very tender journey. It feels like one in which they have to trust. Yes. That they are exactly who God created them to be, even if that's really painful. Yes. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. I'm Garrett Mostowski, and I'm in charge of production. And I'm Christy Holly, and I'm the creative designer. Like what you're hearing? Let us know by rating us on iTunes. The Distillery Podcast is part of The Thread, a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more episodes and other content at thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.